Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. Still rolling along, waiting for spring, but uh, I guess that's what it's like in Canada. Pretty sure if you like go back to all of our episodes done in February and March for the past uh, six years that we've been do- seven years that we've been doing this. Oh, geez. Uh, you'd probably say that, I think, pretty much every single time. Also, can you believe that it has been seven years of doing this podcast? We're actually, I think this week or maybe it's next week would be our seven year anniversary because I remember Sea Otter was our third episode that we recorded and that was with Ryan Leach. Right. But the first two episodes were with us uh, done in California. So happy, happy anniversary, dear. Yeah, I guess there you go. We've been doing this. (laughs) Time goes by. So many episodes. I don't think we've ever missed a week in seven years. So high five for that. I don't know. Maybe one we like took off, but we didn't like the feeling or something. No, I think we really, yeah. you're right. You're right. We've missed one episode and, but we've done so many weeks where we've done double episodes that I think we can give ourselves a pass. Yeah. And, and if you haven't gone back, I mean, some of them, you know, probably you don't need to, but uh, I think there's some great ones back there. And we actually, there was some sort of setting that was not correct in our, in the newer. So like over the seven years we've changed uh, host a few times and so there was some setting that like you couldn't search it in the in the catalog if you will uh so now all those i think it goes back to number one uh way back so oh boy definitely don't listen to episode number one or two uh those are those are very old so those will be popular this week yeah right perfect uh but a few good ones i mean geez we had so many good guests on in that first year i mean we had uh, stacy sims comes to mind just because her episodes always are just such big hits with our our audience and we've had her on almost every year i think at this point yeah yeah no some great ones but yeah pretty pretty proud of us but otherwise yeah you're right just just rolling along getting getting through uh into into spring here i think it is actually technically spring right now i think spring happened this past week so Mm -hmm. yay for spring snow is almost melted here we're getting there uh and yeah that's that's pretty much what's going on yeah <laughs> it's it's one of those weird things we're just kind of back into the the normal you know swing of life but today's episode i'm actually pretty excited i yeah talking about all things sort of pt related with chris johnson so what did you two get into yeah so chris is someone uh you know from the seattle area out on the the west northwest uh and a pt who uh, we've gotten to know you know he knows greg layman who's been on the show a bunch as well uh, and I got you know enamored. I think mostly just his videos online on YouTube and Vimeo, and now on Instagram as well, uh, where he does you know sort of t- standard, I guess, running and and you know I guess therapy exercises. Uh, he's big on marching, but just different you know step ups, these sort of things. But generally in a very slow, controlled manner, and it's it's almost meditative. I think just watching some of these uh, these videos, right? And it's just this guy walking across the screen, uh, you know, marching or holding some weights and marching or doing step-ups or step-ups to the side so yeah so i think that's definitely worth a look if you don't have his youtube channel and his instagram uh you know just great set of exercises for you know 
the the folks who are listening uh who are doing endurance exercises and just trying to stay strong you know as adults yeah and you talked about stuff for new and like long time runners cyclists trying to start running all that kind of stuff well that's it he's a, a triathlete so he does the three sports as well uh great runner uh obviously so he, we speak about you know for the consummate athlete who wants to maybe just run a couple times like what does a maintenance dose look like and it, it's interesting i had never maybe thought about it this way where a triathlete sort of like that in some ways they don't run every day of the week in most cases i feel like triathletes are kind of constantly in like maintenance dose with everything right and what's the minimum and, and you know the triathletes are thinking about like what's my strength but you know we our our listeners might be you know which is my main sport or the sport i'm focusing on this season and you might be trying to maintain running so we talk a, a little bit around that uh you know minimum dose what a minimum run like single run might be uh, a bit around exercises and then we also touch on he had a recent outside uh, magazine article come out about sort of the most common running injuries and why they happen okay what's number one? Oh, i don't know you're putting me on the spot but oh, it's boy. like things like shin splints or ankles this or knee pain or it band or these these different things nice and we'll include a link to that in the show notes but you guys will also just chat through it uh yeah parts of it yeah we don't go you know we save it for the <laughs> don't article go all, you, you, all have seven. Go, you have to go read the article we're not going to do the work for you <laughs> uh yeah so that's that's that really we're just talking about these concepts around you know running and staying healthy as an an athlete and yeah it was great to finally connect with with chris because i had never like i say you, you watch these people on on instagram and stuff so yeah we're very thankful for, to have them on the show perfect and before we get into that just a reminder we're now kind of coming up on a lot of the four to five months out from a lot of the key races so we have a lot of uh stock training plans that have been updated that are all over on consummateathlete.com yeah and i would say even three months is, is you know most of these things when we're starting to get into um you know the stage races that are coming in july june july just occurred to me that it's almost april that's horrifying yeah, yeah no i think you're definitely more coming up on the three months for a lot of these uh but yeah a lot of the stage races now bc bike race uh quebec single track which we're headed to uh they're sort of early july so yeah the the, the time is coming sort of that hustle period uh spring is here that's why we keep bringing up spring right it's sort of that you know what what are you preparing for and getting ready and so these plans are, are great ways to sort of have a template to to work towards uh these specific goals perfect yeah so head to consummateathlete.com check out the training plans there and you can also head over there for the show notes and without further ado let's get into this conversation with chris johnson what's the day in the life then you know right now a day in the life these days is very tame you know so we uh we live in Edmonds, which is about maybe 20 minutes north of Seattle. We relocated up here uh, at the end of August. And yeah, I'm married. I have two kids. I have an incredible four-year-old boy, Kai, and a seven-year-old daughter, Liv. And we just got a, a new Pomeranian, a 12-week-old puppy. So she's probably squealing in the background because she wants to get out of her ca cage. We're trying to basically like get her tr potty trained right now. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, and I, I pretty much am a, a solopreneur and a master's level athlete, and I still train twice a day. Um, I'll race. I'm pretty loose with racing anymore. Um, I race just to get me to be a little bit more scientific with my training, so I'm not just swim, biking, running around the world with no real purpose. Um, but yeah, I'm uh, still getting after it. And still racing, mostly triathlon, or, or is it like you also do like a run, or, or what's that look like? Yeah. I mean, I should be just pure road running. Um, you know, I think if I were to try and push something as far as I could, I mean, I, I feel like I could have more success there, but I, I feel much better when I'm, when I'm doing triathlon, you know, if I were running every day, I just feel like it beats me up a little bit. 
Um, I feel like if I'm just running five days a week as a sweet spot, um, lifting twice a day, maybe one day off. Um, but I just, I love swim, bike and run. And to me, it's, I don't, I don't have anything to prove anymore. Um, I'm competitive as hell, like, which is why I don't like, I have to be careful of racing all the time because it could consume me. Um, but I'll race, uh, the Honu 70.3 this year. Um, I'm signed up for Boston, but I don't think I'm going to do it. It's just too much of a fiasco and I'm traveling and teaching a lot right now, but, um, yeah, I want to get back to Kona and have a good race in Kona. I blew up the last time it was an ecosystem issue. Um, but yeah, so I, I still have unfinished business. I think everyone does if, uh, if, if they're dabbling in these sports. I think so. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that, you know, I, I've seen you on the internet and followed you for a lot of years now. Um, and, and so I, I, I think what I was drawn to why I was drawn to you is, you know, it seems like, you, you know, you have the kids, the family, the dog now, uh, and then you're doing all the stuff in business, as you say, solopreneur, and you've launched different courses, uh, moving, you know, so mm-hmm. I think you appeal both to me, but then also for our podcast, you know, we are, we say like we, we work with busy people who want to do, you know, big endurance adventures. So you sort of fit in professionally and, uh, you know, I guess in your, your private life, if you will. Um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I guess where I wanted to go with that is, uh, it all sort of, you had Greg on your podcast and Greg, you know, has been on ours a few times and you were saying, you know, a lot of coaches don't embrace cross training or something to that effect. And I was like, Greg, come on, introduce me. <laughs> Cause I was like, that's, that's exactly yeah. what we're always saying. So I'm curious about your experience there. Cause you said if you only ran, you know, you could probably be a really good runner, but you, you like to have strength in there, you know, be a triathlete, you know, if you will. Uh, so I'm just curious about yeah. that. Like, how do you find that balance then? Um, you know, with that, you know, are you, you said you're running five days a week on that or that you could run five a day, times a week. Yeah. If I were just road running or road racing, I, I would be probably running five to six days a week. Okay. Um, okay. But what I found is, you know, I, I love triathlon. I love the variability of it. And I feel like my, my body, I just feel better physically. Um, but you know, I love endurance sports. People say, why do you train so much? I'm like, why wouldn't I, I feel sharper, you know, like mentally, um, I sleep better. I feel, I just, I feel great when I'm training. Um, but yeah, I know what I've noticed too, is like with triathlon, if I spend too much time running, I lose power on the bike. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't run as much when I'm preparing for a triathlon race as I would, if I were just trying to basically have a go to marathon. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I really go on how I feel, you know, if I'm, even if I'm good at something like running, you know, um, I'm not going to do it just because I feel like that's a sport I would excel in. You know, I want to do things where, you know, I do them because I enjoy them and I feel good doing them. Sure. So, so so now you'd be more like a three times. I'm just curious about the frequency piece uh, that you're finding yourself, you know, when, with, when you're more on this triathlon or feel good sort of routine, uh, would it be more like three times a week or how often do you figure you find yourself running? running four times a week on the most part. And then if I'm ramping up for a race, I would throw a fifth and, uh, and, but one of those would be a relatively tame run off the bike. Um, like, so for example, today I'll probably do a 90 minute ride over lunch to a 30 minute run off the bike. Um, just cause my friend bailed on me for swimming, you know? So I usually swim. There's a, there's an incredible outdoor pool. That's three quarters of a mile uh, oh, wow. from our new house. Yeah. 25 meters. It's 82 degrees. 
and it's just it's it's a sanctuary it's literally in the forest um so that's the one thing that always gave because you know i had to drive to a pool that was at the other end of town and i would end up going there at like 8 30 9 o'clock at night so i was at the mercy of when my kids went to sleep so I just used to have to double down on biking and running. So if you look at my times, like I'll come out in good position in the swim and then I'm just picking people off as I go through the bike and then onto the run. Um, but this year it'll be different. I'm going to come out of the water, you know, hopefully front pack and just be that much further up the road mm -hmm. uh, on the bike, which I'll be riding with the people that I should be. Now, how do you find, uh, I guess what I'm trying to read here is, are you saying that your bike is a little weaker then, or or what would you say as far as biking then? No, I would say my bike and run are pretty much equal. So like the, the last time I raced Ironman Canada, um, which was the last full I did, mm -hmm. um, I think I, I think I had maybe the third fastest bike and then the second fastest run. So people, yeah people always have this impression of me that I just run and that's it. And, uh, I would say that my, my bike and run are pretty even and, um, I'm an adult onset swimmer as, as you put it. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I swam when I was younger. I just, I didn't focus a lot on swimming. Mm -hmm. We did. Which year did you do Ironman Canada? We did it in, I think it was 16 or 17. Which year did you do it? I did it in, I did it in 2000. Let's see. 2000. I'm just looking up 2014 and then I want to say 2018 where I had a DNF. I just, I went out too hard, um, mm. on the bike. Was it in Whistler or was it, was it warm there? that day? It was in Whistler. Okay. Yeah. Every time I've written, well, I did Penticton back in 2010, which I loved. Um, and then mm. I qualified for Kona in 2000. I'm just looking up at my races right now. <laughs> Trying to find the race calendar. Yeah, um, 2014. And then I qualified in 2019, right before the pandemic. And that was, I had a strong race that year. It was uh, sort of the last year before my kids really started, you know, being front and center. Hmm. Um, hmm. And that's, that's so. a topic we go off. Uh, a bunch is, you know, this comparison to past selves, you know, you, you now have, you know, you've moved, you have more businesses than you had before. You have more kids, more dogs. Mm -hmm. So how are you handling that as a competitive person? Uh, I just look at it as a yellow light time. You know, I work with a lot of athletes and, and I say, look, they're red light, yellow light, and green light times. And it's how you manage those yellow light and red light times. It will ultimately determine how much you can push and dig when you have a green light time. So we're starting to get into a, a situation where my kids are both in school now, where I have a little bit more freedom and flexibility during the day. So now, now it's a time to push, right? Um, we're in our new place. The dust is settled. The pandemic, even though, you know, COVID's still here, um, you know, we've learned how to navigate that. That's not so much a threat. So yeah, it, it's on over the next few years, especially because I just aged up. So I'm 45, 49 age group now. Okay. So I feel like I have a, uh, an opportunity to, to make a push over the next couple of years. I gotcha. Yeah. And it's so tough. Were you able to, you know, it's easy in, in hindsight to say now is the time to push. Were you able to, to pull back like over the last couple of years, you know, maybe the pandemic helped force that perhaps, I don't know. Uh, what did you think? I, I just, I always prioritize consistency of training. So, um, you know, I think when the races started really getting pulled off the calendar, 
whether I have a race on the schedule or not, I'm going to be training every day for the most part. The intensity and the duration of my training sessions, though, will look a little bit different, mm-hmm. you know, and being in Seattle, and I'm sure you go through the same thing in, in the Northeast is the seasons periodize your training, you know? Um, so this time of the year, it's like, yeah, I'm starting to, to ramp things up a little bit, but you know, once we hit say mid-March, April, I'll start really pushing more and I just have better energy. You know, we're starting to get out of the doldrums of winter. Right. And, um, it's funny. I talk to athletes that I, I work with. I'm like, man, I just feel sluggish. I'm like, well, it's dark all the time, man. Like, of course you feel sluggish. You know, don't, it's January. don't play head games it's with January. yourself. Yeah. It's January. Get on the bike, break a sweat, you know, start stringing together workouts, be forgiving of yourself. Um, cause I do think people try to just, they try to sit at that pointy end of sharp all year round and that's just a recipe for burnout, non-functional overreaching, injury, sickness, you know, so you, you just have to ebb and flow with the seasons as well as life. Yeah. I always say that's, that's a plateau. That's the definition of a plateau as if it's the same all the time, right? It's, you know, the peak is the peak implies that it has to come down at some point. Yeah. All the hmm. Californians, man, you know, I, uh, I have a bunch of friends who live in California and they are just, their training looks the same all year round, you know, and I hope they're be, listening to this podcast. Cause I yeah. always remind them of that. It would be very hard. Um, yeah, I've spent, I've been fortunate to travel to South, we're actually in Florida right now and spent a lot of time in California over the years at camps and coaching camps. Um, but definitely mm-hmm. it's, I think that's where you have to be a little more like, you know, this is the cross training time. And, you know, as you say, you know, you, you broke it down there, you know, there's how many runs or hikes or swims, you know, that you're starting to incorporate as if you were, uh, in, in the snow somewhere, right? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, we're covering here, you know, around this, uh, I, I had one of the questions I want to go, we've sort of, we've sort of go, gone around just with you and, and being a master's triathlete and, and, you know, how many runs I want to ask you it a little different though. Let's say we have a cyclist who's wanting to do a bit of running. You know, what do you think the minimum is? I know, uh, and I will link to this article. You had a great one come out with outside magazine and, and common reasons mm-hmm. runners get injured. And, and one of those was, I think around consistency or, or big changes. So with that article, you know, linked in the show notes, can you take us through there sort of a minimum if we're more of a, a cyclist, you know, who wants to keep running in the routine? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that if someone has a cycling background and they're, they're looking to get into a, a healthy and consistent routine with running, I think running three days a week would sort of be a minimum effective dose. Um, you know, and I would, I would structure those on, um, non-consecutive days, you know, so Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, um, I think that would bode well. And just, you know, if people are trying to broach that, throw them some softballs from a programming standpoint, let them check the boxes because what you don't want to do is, you know, get overzealous with their programming and then they get injured. And, you know, several of the points I made in that article, I'm sort of touching on right now, but you have to be training consistently, you know, and, this is why I always get frustrated when people get enamored by these jaw dropping workouts that you see the pros do because most of their training and most good training is boring as hell, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Certain days you can throw down and get after it, but most of the time you're just putting in sensible efforts day in and day out. Because if you're doing, you know, 400 training sessions a year, you can't get too carried away. You'll never survive. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I felt like it took me 10 to 15 years of just training in a sensible and consistent manner before my physiology really started taking off and, and showing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We just had a, a good, good friend and, and one of our top mountain biking women on and, and she, her best world's championship result came 20 years after her first, after her, after her first world championship. So not even 20 years into like training, but like 20 years, uh, which is yeah. wild, <laughs> uh, to think that. And there's all sorts of stories of this, you know, minimum, maybe 10 years, but you know, we have a lot of 16 year type progressions where it's like, that's, you know, that's the name of the game with these sports. My friend Joel has a, um, he's someone I coach with and Joel Satgast, he's on faculty at uh, Eastern Washington University and Joel is, he is easily one of the best coaches in the world and um, he always says seven by 52 by 10, you know, when people ask like if they're going to tackle a bag, a big, hairy, audacious goal and they're like, you know, what do you think I'm capable of? He's like, Let's let's talk and, and see what happens after 10 years of training in a consistent, healthy manner. Um, I think that's a lot for people to wrap their head around. But if, you know, I mean, what you just mentioned, what I just mentioned, I mean, it speaks to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so three days a week. I like that for frequency and consistency. Um, if if someone throw four, I would say three to four. Yeah. 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 And I mean, if someone was starting, I guess it's, it depends, right? Like where are they starting from to you? This is always the, it depends question. Um, you know, let's assume injury free and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Would you still include, you know, something like a, a hike or a walk or, or how do you, you know, or run walk? Like what, let's say they're starting from pretty minimum, but not in a hole, <laughs> you know, what, what is that if we went deeper on that? Well, I think that if you have someone that's coming off of a cycling background, um, and that's been their sport, the one thing that, you know, I remind people of is there's no eccentric contraction they're having to deal with as a cyclist. So what you don't want to do is for them to, you know, get uh, too ambitious out of the gates and they just trip off some gnarly exercise induced muscle damage. They're going to have to go through an adaptation process. So yeah, you know, I always say to anyone who's looking to take up running, who hasn't been running with any regularity or doesn't come from a running background newsflash, the first two to four weeks are going to be a progressive walking routine. And you can bitch and moan about how it's boring, but you'll start to, you'll start to enjoy those walks, but then those would bleed into walk runs and then continuous running. Mm -hmm. And I still, you know, even with, I mean, even if you look at the pros when they're racing Kona, most of them are doing walk runs through the aid stations but you have a lot of age groupers that feel defeated. I've never run continuously through an Ironman, you know, um, and I've, I've had, I've posted some good times, but, you know, I'll run right up to the aid station, power walk through it, and then pick up my run again. And I think for triathletes, that's great because you're essentially breaking the race into bouts of running, right? It's like, just get to the next aid station, get fuel on board, get ice, you know, over glabrous surfaces, and, um, and then start running again, you know? So I think from a psychological standpoint, from a nutrition and fueling standpoint that, um, people should be rehearsing those. So if I have a, an athlete that I'm coaching that if they want to go out on a two hour run, I may say, Hey, let's go and do eight by 15 bouts of running, focus on even pacing those with one minute of walk between each of those 15 minute bouts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but 
But yeah, people feel so defeated if they don't start and end a run running continuously. Hmm. Yeah. And, and you see it again. I, I was reading a book just about a guy. I'm blanking on his name and he had set the world record for like the six day races or, you know, and, and just running astronomical amount. And he he said, like, you had to have a plan. You, you didn't want to get to the point of fatigue and then just like fade. Like he, so he would have like, it might be an hour and an hour and an hour and an hour. Like it was something yeah. like that. Cause he's dealing in days. Right. So it, it's long, but it's not that he couldn't run for a day. He could probably run for days, <laughs> you know, or, or waddle or, you know, whatever they do. Um, so I thought that was interesting. The other piece that I wonder what you think about is, and it doesn't work with everyone. It depends how much of an endurance beast people are, but I've had pretty good luck tying it to heart rate and just saying, you know, you can run as, you know, whatever you want till you hit, say, 80% of max heart rate, or you pick the threshold and then walk till you hit 60, right? And you sort of bounce. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems like the endurance, you know, I need to be exercising group of people, <laughs> which probably both you and I are, uh, seem to like that better than just this set, you know, four minutes and one minute and four minutes or whatever it is. They, they get like, oh, the heart rate's still up. So it's okay. Right. And, and that seems, I think it ends up probably about the same for a lot of people. Yeah. And that's the beauty of those, uh, those one minute walking breaks that I often incorporate into my programming is, yeah, it's helping you from a psychological standpoint. It's allowing you to take nutrition on, but it's also, can allow your heart rate to drop a little bit, but not too much, right? Mm-hmm. Someone asked me the other day, they're like, why 60 seconds? I said, because it allows your heart rate to come down a little bit, but it's not like it's coming down below 100 beats per minute. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, very simple programming, but there's a lot of uh, rationale behind it. Okay. I had, and I don't know if this will even tie into anything or not. So we could, we can go off in a different direction, but I I had a question for you about neuromuscular fatigue and running, uh, which I think ties a bit into Mm -hmm. this frequency piece. And and you said, you know, not having workouts that are big, giant hero workouts, you know, coming back soon. So when you think about neuromuscular fatigue, is that part of why maybe we're doing the run walks or, or what do you think? Well, I, I do think that that's very important if someone's coming off of injury, because I, I work with a lot of runners who will consult me where there hasn't been uh, a specific or an acute injury, right? But what they'll say, and this is classic with patellofemoral pain, where they'll say, you know, I'm usually good on my runs until say 30 to 40 minutes into the run. And then my knee starts bothering me. And when you look at their data, a lot of the times, what you'll notice is uh, in many cases, they'll start to probably fatigue a little bit and their step rate will start to come down. And we know that that's going to increase the magnitude of loading with each individual loading cycle. Um, So yeah, fatigue is such a complex beast and I don't think we fully know the half of it. Um, When I was in New York, it, the Nicholas Institute, they were doing a lot of uh, research on understanding fatigue mechanisms in cyclists, you know, because, you know, I think historically everyone's thought, oh, fatigue, it's, it's, it's a peripheral issue. And, you know, what we're starting to realize is that's not always the case. I mean, you can have central fatigue and this is different between men and women too. So the strategy, the strategies that we would take to circumvent um, fatigue would probably be different. And I don't know where, where things currently stand. Um, and then you can throw Sam Marcora into the mix where, you know, he said that fatigue is more of an emotion. Um, I, I tend to sit somewhere in the middle. I, I do think there, there's a physiologic component to it. Having gone through a lot of the testing, cause I was a pilot subject for a lot of the, the testing and protocols that they developed. 
Um, but yeah, with running, I don't know the literature in terms of fatigue mechanisms between mm. central and peripheral. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe it's not even necessarily what I should be asking. I guess maybe what I'm looking at too, is, you know, you have, uh, maybe it's muscular. We could even just call it muscular, but you have your cyclist who's otherwise fit, but the, you know, the frame, the musculature, the soft tissue isn't strong or, or prepared for it. They go for a 10 K run because they always do one hour workouts or one, 90 minute workouts mm-hmm. or whatever a workout has to be. Uh, and then they can't, you know, do anything or, or they try and get on the bike the next day and they say they're very tired and running sucks because they're, they're very muscularly tired. Right. Um, and that's, I guess what I'm maybe trying to ask is, you know, when we're looking at running, is that what we're trying to control a bit? Is that like super extended muscular fatigue or, or just fatigue if you like? Yeah. I mean, someone who is, who has a cycling background, I mean, that's what they're, that's what's going to happen. If they go out and they start getting carried away with running, it's going to start spilling over into their cycling where they're carrying around this fatigue. They're not able to hit the power numbers that they they typically have. Um, I mean, that's a whole challenge of triathlon, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's juggling these different workloads and performance demands of the sport. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tricky. I I, I enjoyed Greg Lehman had a thing and I think he was on about bone stress or something, uh, as he does. Um, but he was saying that even 10 minutes was like a, almost like a good dose. If you were thinking just towards the benefits on the the skeleton and running, I don't know if you saw that or what what you think about that, Mm -hmm. but, but I I think messages like that are almost really empowering that like, you know, especially for the cyclist who's just trying to like maybe get into running, you know, the winter's coming and they plan to do it that even like a 10 minute, you know, maybe like you, you're talking about uh, a brick, right. A run off the bike or something, uh, Mm -hmm. could be enough for a dose for this population to start seeing improvements. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we know that cyclists don't tend to have the same bone health as athletes who are participating in axial loaded sports. So if they're trying to do things to perhaps improve their skeletal health, yeah, if they're going to run, don't get too hung up on the duration of the run. And I would say 10 minutes is probably exceeding it. You know, mm-hmm. um, there are probably other better stimuli relative to running. Running's not a, a, a terrible stimulus, but um, it's not the greatest stimulus if you look at like the osteogenic index. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah, I, uh, I, I would say, you know, if I was trying to prioritize skeletal health, it would be get someone strong and then give them some more explosive type drills, power plyometric work, um, in, in short bouts or doses. Sure. Yeah. Strength. Yeah. Training. I mean, there, I guess... there's, go ahead. Well, I was going to say the research on this stuff is tricky because a lot of it is done in an animal model where they're like taking rat ulnas and, um, Burr wrote a a seminal paper on this in 2022 that we can put in the show notes. I can send you a link to that, but yeah, I mean, that's what I wrestle with a lot of the times is, you know, what's, how do we extrapolate that data? We know bone saturates pretty quick and becomes mechanically deaf to load, after say, you know, 40 loading cycles, you know, and then it'll reset and say, you know, you want to give it at least four hours, probably eight hours, 24 hours, it's going to regain 98% of its mechanosensitivity. Um, so yeah, all this stuff has to be factored in, you know, based on the stimulus that you're trying to create. Hmm. So, hmm. 
You mentioned strength. I mean, I guess that's the other thing you mentioned there, balancing, you know, the the, the challenge of triathlon and balancing things. How do you then bring in a fourth sport, uh, if, if we can call strength a sport, how do you bring that into the the schedule, both as a, a busy person, but then again, someone who who likes doing strength training? How do you find that, you know, when we're doing four and five runs? I think that it goes back to a Dan Johnism, which is concentrate on doing fewer things better. And mm-hmm you need to get the dosage right because I've been guilty in sort of knowingly, like I was working on a, a product that, um, that I created and I love to demo all these exercises because I've been doing it for a while. And there's certain details that I really want to emphasize. And, um, I was shooting a bunch of strength videos and then went and raced a 70.3 about a week later. And I just didn't have that top end gear that I typically have if I were fresh So I think that as much as everyone's beating the strength training drum, which I think is a great drum to beat, well, what's the context that it's being plugged into? Because, you know, when you have people that are doing swim, bike, run, they're generally overachievers, type A, and now they're taking three sports combined into one, and you're throwing a fourth discipline in when they're probably already under-recovered and... Yeah. So you have to be very conservative when you go to introduce strength work Um, and you're going to need to pull back on something. Right. So I think that when you, when you go to incorporate this into someone's programming, it's got to be at a time where you're not really competing with volume. So right now I would say like you can keep strength training when you're in season but you're going to probably be strength training one day a week um, as opposed to maybe two or three. Um, but I think where you're plugging that in, in terms of the overall plan is really critical. So like if someone's coming off of Kona, yeah. So they finish in say early October, they should just chill the hell out the rest of October, nothing structured, you know, dabble in whatever you want. And then in November is when, that's a time to get into the weight room and start really focusing on just fundamental movements, you know, the big lifts doing, you know, so compound movements and then coupling that with, um, some single leg exercises, you know, some balance work and then some isolation work, you know, in terms of like single leg calf raises, knee extensions. Um, and then once you have strength as a vehicle, then you can start getting into rate of force development. And I think that's really important for running because that's the name of the game, right? Mm-hmm. So it's using strength as a vehicle to better express force and rate of force development. I loved uh, on the note of adding jumps in, uh, I loved your routine. I commented there on your Instagram and I'll try and find the link to that as well for your routine that you posted. Um, and you said it was mm-hmm. sort of like an adaptation of easy strength, but uh, it's a quick little routine and it has sort of three, I think three jumps in it, right? Three different exercises that are jumps built into. Was that strength. the one to the rap song where it was like pogo jumps and then. Um... No, I don't think so. This one had, what did you have in it? It might've been just like step ups and a squat, a box squat. And then you were ju- using your bench oh, to yeah. jump, o- jump over the bench. And then you had like a foot up on the box. It was sort of all built around your bench. <laughs> I don't know if that rings a bell. It was maybe oh, cool. two months ago. I'll have to take a look. Yeah. yeah. I mean, programming, these exercises should not be mystical, magical, right? <laughs> Save that for Instagram. But most of the, these are just good strength exercises. And it's like, where do you plug them in and how do you sequence them? And then mm-hmm. what's the, 
what kind of loads are you using? You know, what's the dosage? What do you look for? You know, you said then you're ready to add speed, rate of force development, jumping, hops, whatever. You know, what do you look for? Yeah. Like when? Uh, I didn't catch that. What do I look for in terms like, of like, like strength when, standards? So what, when is someone ready to do jumping or, or is it right off the bat you can start them with skipping or what do you think? I think you're fine to start people unless they're dealing with, you know, an Achilles tendon issue or they're recently coming off of a calf muscle strain. Um, I think you're fine to do these lower level rhythmic type plyometric drills. Um, I think it's when you get into the more explosive stuff that that's when you really want to have a foundation of strength. Um, and I'll bite off of TJ Sakamal. I hope that's how you pronounce his name, but you know, where you're looking to get someone up to, um, you know, a back squat 1.5 times body weight, you know, being able to pull a deadlift that's one and a half times, if not twice body weight. Right. So I want people to, to get up to these standards because that's only going to allow them better express rate of force development. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I think people shy away from introducing plyos when they could definitely be doing stuff like just jump rope, pogo jumps, um, you know, a skips, things of that nature, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that those are really good because I'm always amazed if I have a master's level, you know, runner triathlete come in and I'm like, Hey, let me watch a skip. And they look at me like they saw a ghost, like they've lost that motor plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that with running, as I always say, when I teach this stuff, when I've been on podcasts, you know, running is about rhythm, timing, and coordination, you know, and a lot of the times we're not challenging people to the extent we could be. And I, when I audit someone's program who is new to working with me, um, that's generally one of the pitfalls. There, there's nothing to challenge that rhythm and, and timing and coordination. Hmm. I also like skipping. Do you ever use the skipping as like a screen if someone to see if someone's ready to actually run or you know come in out of therapy or um, or I should say rehab or uh, you know just you know, off the street, I guess. Do you ever use running or skipping in that way? Yeah, you could. I mean, I'm, I want to get into some degree of energy storage and release because that's what running entails. Um, so whether that's skipping, whether that's pogo jumps, whether that's single leg hopping, um, there are different implications to those. I mean, whether it's double leg, single leg, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you could have one of the things I say when I teach, if you can skip, you can run, Right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, that holds true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And it's fun, not funny. I mean, people are scared of it for different reasons. Um, but it is, you know, in some ways it is sort of like an interesting question to ask someone almost on an intake form, right. Is you, you get a, mm-hmm. there's a lot of different reasons someone might not, you know, ranging from musculoskeletal or pelvic health or <laughs> bad, bad elementary school experiences or something. Yeah. People, they do lose that ability though. You know, and it's mm-hmm. for anyone who, who is forward facing with patients. When you ask them to skip, everyone knows what I'm talking about where people are looking at you like, do I even remember how to skip? It's funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you have a runs well program that's just come out right recently here. Yeah. And we're going to kill it too. Oh, what do you mean? Yeah. You were, you weren't expecting that, right? No, no. Or do you want to talk about it? Yeah. I should have asked you right off the bat. No, I, I never want to look at questions when I get on podcasts. I like to have these these conversations unfold organically. So um, 
that is something I teamed up with uh, or teamed up on with my buddy, Michael Henry, who's just a brilliant, incredible person, first and foremost, but just um, an incredible creative, you know, so he and I teamed up. He had reached out because he was dealing with some knee issues and we got his knee squared away. He got back to training. He unfortunately just tore his ACL skiing, but um, we got him back to running and marathoning. And, you know, he was like, we need to, to create something and put this out. So we basically pulled our skill sets together and, um, and developed that program Runwell, which is still it's runwell.com. And that was such an incredible learning experience. So yeah, I mean, we dumped a year uh, of blood, sweat and tears into it, got incredible signal from our network. But um, I think the major learning with that is um, you need to really bake marketing and distribution into a project like that. Um, so I think that for anyone who's followed it, they've had success. You know, we we had a community that started forming, but it was such a heavy lift for that to continue. And we're a two man team, right? Um, and we're we were bootstrapping this thing. So one of the things that you always hear in the entrepreneurial circles, if you're going to fail, you fail fast. And you know, so we came out. I mean, we didn't lose money from that. We became very good friends, and you know. Out, we look at the time and energy is our tuition for those learnings. But my learnings from that are so deep. Mm-hmm. I know exactly next time I go to launch, like how I'm going to approach solving uh, solving a problem like that. Because I do think that that population, like recreational dis- distance runners, um, are very underserved. They're very confused. They're working with a lot of misinformation. They have this notion that running is injurious and they're one step away from basically uh, landing in a doctor's office. And that's just so far from the case. Mm-hmm. You know, running is one of the healthiest things that you can do. One of the low, lowest barriers to entry. It's not by accident that so many people do it. Um, and we've also learned through the research that it's it's great for your joint health. Mm-hmm. It's this you know low-level rhythmic plyometric where you're probably getting you know, good stimulus for the articular cartilage. And um, yeah, so, but yeah, it was, and I don't, I don't look back and have any reservations uh, about doing run well, you know, but it's one of those things that we got so much signal that we thought like, oh, this is going to take off. And we were just trying to help recreational distance runners. You know, to mm-hmm. say, hey, here's here is a sensible way to approach running. Here's a framework, and just really giving them the tools and resources because I think that a lot of people do enjoy racing, but I think the large segment, the largest segment of runners, people just want to be able to run a few times a week. Uh, they want to maybe have this interface with their life, maybe their lifting routine, and they want to be able to run deep into life. And mm-hmm. I hear that more and more from a lot of millennials is like they don't care to, you know, to set some blazing fast time in a race. They want to run into their seventies and eighties. Mm-hmm. And that's a demographic that we are trying to serve. Mm-hmm. You know, the recreational, you know, if you've only been in racing and, you know, coaching racing and dealing with racers, right. It seems like it's everything, but then it's a much bigger world of recreational, you know, our mountain bike club is. is recreational in town and it's, 
massive versus, you know, there's probably five or six people that still race, you know, in something in our little mountain town. And then I don't know what it would be, right. It's like hundreds times, right. Like it's 800, 900 in our club alone, let alone the people that just do their own ride, you know, they don't, they don't want to even be a part of anything. So it is, you know, if you only tried to serve the racers, you know, it's, it's a very small piece of the pie. And I look at a lot of these programs, you know, and I'm not going to name brands or companies, but you know, people will bring these programs to me and they're like, you know, I started doing this program. What do you think of it? Uh, I'm like running seven miles the first week of a beginner half marathon program. I don't know who wrote that. They're disconnected with reality, mm-hmm. you know, a, like because they're basing like, this like in one, mileage. one seven mile run you mean, or, or total distance. Yeah. First week of the program, seven mile run. I'm like, right. and I think what happens is you have a lot of folks who are gifted runners but they were exposed and like what they think of is a sensible running program is very far from what that recreational distance runner needs. I wouldn't even have them run. If someone hasn't been training consistently, I wouldn't even have them run for the first few weeks. I would have them on a progressive walking program that morphed into a walk run and then continuous running. I really like, like it's sort of, it's like a a lot of these people get injured. Yeah. And it's sort of like, we don't think about, you know, how much do we need to start getting better, right? It's sort of like a fire hose, like just like everything all at once, like go to altitude and do, you know, and it's like, we could probably just walk and you'd, <laughs> you'd get better, right? You know, don't, don't yeah. spend. Yeah. Hmm. And before I program for anyone, I say, I need to see two to three weeks of where you're coming from. And I have a more in-depth conversation with that person. But I just want to see how they go about mapping out their own training, left to their own devices. And then from there, I'll say, hey, let's throw, let's, let's have you extend this walk. You know, okay, you've been doing this for a couple weeks. You're up to an hour of walking on rolling terrain. Let's start doing a walk run. Maybe just start you off a two minute run, two minute walk, throw them softballs, let them, let them check the box. And then we can just progressively nudge. Um, here's a question, yeah, you know, we have these, is, they, yep. These recreational runners, uh, which I, I'd include myself mostly in, you know, I just run, I think I'm a millennial exactly as you described, want to keep running, you know, like to have the option when I, when, you know, my wife runs and, um, what would you say is like a bread and butter, you know, unremarkable type run? Like, what do you think would be building towards there when, you know, someone's healthy, they're doing the three ish runs a week, uh, like, is there like a bread and butter type run there, you know, given that they're not trying to train for Kona? Like, what do you think? How do you think about that? Like the, yeah, really easy. 10 minute walk, seven and a half minute run at three out of 10. If we're going off that rating of perceived exertion scale that was in the outside magazine, 32 and a half minute run at four out of 10, 10 minute walk, cool down. Love it. Boring, boring as hell. Right? Love it. But so start I, I, stringing a bunch of those together and watch what happens. I love it. Yeah. No, I think that's the sweet spot. I always say 5k to five miles and it sort of depends how fit you are. Uh, you know, obviously with a warm up and a cool down and whatever you need to do, but, uh, yeah, I love it. I love to hear that. Um, I think you can, you can do so much you can always scale from there, but I just feel like that's like the lowest risk. And if you're there and it's comfy and it's, you know, you could almost do it off the couch, right. It's just, I think that's a really, you know, I think that's as a recreational run, you're not trying to do anything, but, but you might decide you're going to do a 10 K run and train for, you know, six, eight weeks. I think it's a good spot to be. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I'm very conservative. Um, most of the people who consult me, they get into trouble because they get overzealous. 
whether that's through duration or intensity. Mm -hmm. You know, and I do think those for someone who is trying to make headway from a performance standpoint, I do think once they prove tolerance to just conversation pace running, that I do start scheduling more hot sessions in, which could be, and I'm biting off of Dan Cleaver with that term, you know, to give credit where it's due. Um, one of those would be a long run. One of those may be a run with some strides. Uh, a third run may be a tempo run or you know, a run with intervals. So like another simple, and we could skin this cat in many, like a million ways. You know, if someone wants to start layering some intervals, start the intervals a little bit shorter. So do a 10 minute walk, seven and a half minute run at three out of 10. 10 minute run at four out of 10, five by one minute efforts at seven out of 10, jog recover as needed. Keep those on level ground though when you first introduce them. So we're not pulling two levers at once and then reverse it. You know, um, so there's a lot of ways to play with it. And you don't, there's no perfect way. It's just, is the person fresh and entering a more challenging workout like that with a high state of readiness? Because if they're not, that's when you have to be careful. And hmm. that's why I embrace all this auto-regulatory stuff. Like yesterday, I had a run. I, I wanted to run with a little bit more intensity, but I didn't get very good sleep. You know, with the little kids, you know, my son was in, we have this new dog. So I just turned that into a conversation pace run. And I think people have a really tough time pivoting. Mm -hmm. um, they always just, they stay so rigid with what's on the schedule and you know this, I mean, the best athletes in the world, they're loose with their training, but they're training consistently. And I do, I think it, I see that all the time that it's, you know, there was whatever the workout was, or if you can't do it, it's zero. And I'm, there's, there's a middle ground there where it's, you know, the endurance piece or the converse, conversational piece, as you say, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit there at, when we start talking about consistency and, you know, coming back up, I think that's smart. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. You said auto-regulatory. What do you mean by that? Basically, training based on how you feel. Mm. Okay. So as I mentioned that outside article, Mel Sif uh, popularized that term. Um, so you can use traffic light, you know, just to get people to embrace it. Some days you're going to feel great. And that's a day where you can nudge and push a little bit more, you know, be sensible though. Don't get too carried away. And there are other days where you just feel like crap. You know, you don't need to bag the workout, but just go out, maybe shorten it a little bit. Keep it conversation pace. If you were planning to go out on a hilly run, just keep it on level ground and gently rolling terrain. Mm -hmm. I think that folks like ourselves, we take these decisions for granted because we just intuitively, intuitively make them. But I think that a lot of people, they're not given the freedom or the liberty to take that. I, I tell every athlete I work with, you are always, you're in the driver's seat, right? You pivot as need be, but I think that's not the norm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard. And whether it's the athlete trying to outsource that or the coach trying to keep the, the control. Uh, yeah. It's a tricky thing when you're in that, that relationship or following a plan, that situation. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, in our last few minutes here, I thought I'd, I don't think any of these are going to be quick answers, but we'll try what we can do. I, I do want to, you know, the, I came, you know, found you and started following you around your, your very slow marching and slow different exercise mm-hmm. videos. Tell me what's, you know, I, I don't think, you know, you would say a lot of the stuff isn't, you know, necessarily special or maybe you would, I don't know. Uh, but why the slow marching, the slow, you know, motions, why why is that such a big piece of at least what i think is a big piece of your practice yeah so as you know i'm a licensed physical therapist so you know when when people come to see me they're generally in pain or dealing with functional limitations and i would say the most common thing that i find among a lot of these people is that they're taking avoidance strategies right they're no longer loading through the region that is symptomatic and, and I think early on, it's like if someone has an ankle sprain, yeah, you want to probably back off a little bit, you know, um, you still want to try and get some load going through the tissues. It's just, you need to titrate that a little bit, uh, with a little bit more discretion, but a lot of these slow movements, you can't cheat, you can't use momentum. So the reason I'm giving those is because a, it mitigates threat, right? If you slow it down people feel like they're a little bit more in control. They invariably start to audit the motion. They're like, why am I gripping with my toes on this side when I'm marching or I'm holding my breath? And on the other side, it feels very fluid. So I don't need to cue them as much. They're already processing all this stuff. So the main thing is, I just want to make sure that someone can directly load through the tissues and regions that are involved because that's what they're avoiding when they connect with me. And your rehab isn't complete until you can directly load through those tissues and regions. So if someone's, you know, like I love looking at a lateral step down is an assessment with runners who consult me. And we'll see a lot of these people sort of sit in their hip. I think it's called a Peterson step down. Um, and most of the time people are doing that because they either a have an ankle dorsiflexion limitation, not a limitation. Maybe that's just their architecture. So they can advance the shin over the foot or get into ankle dorsiflexion. So they sit into their hip. Maybe they've been cued to do that. Maybe they've had some sort of, they've had a situation in the past where the therapist that they consulted may have cued them to do that. So when I'm, when I'm giving a runner a lateral step down, I want to see them advance the shin over the foot and directly load that knee and patellofemoral joint. You know, because I see a lot of people avoiding that with running and with exercise. And I think a healthy knee should be able to tolerate that. Um, so, yeah, that's the rationale behind a lot of that. And I always say, you know, with rehab, two to one, meaning bilateral to single leg, slow to fast, straight plane to diagonal, you know, just overarching rehab principles. Um, so I don't just you know, do these slow motion drills in perpetuity. I mean, there's a progression to them. Right. Um, but you know, and what do we see the benefits of with, with a lot of the, the research on resistance training, it's a heavy, slow resistance. And that's especially the case with people who have lower limb tendinopathy. We know high contraction, um, or high intensity contractions, whether that's in the form of isometrics or heavy, slow resistance is very important to elicit strain, which is going to elicit adaptations in the mechanical properties of the tendon. So, you know, 
there there's good reason why I do a lot of that. But mm. we also have to get that tendon, especially with runners, back to energy storage and release because that's typically the most provocative thing. So it does give you more time under load then is what you're saying too. Yeah, with the isometrics and the heavy right. slow resistance, yeah. Yeah. So now, now been, do you do you keep yeah. it in most of your routines? You know, you know, it might be a very heavy, you know, weight you're holding like a farmer's carry and marching. I, I you know, I've seen something like this too. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you keep in pretty much every program or or do you exclude it at some point? Uh, I would exclude it a little bit as we start to approach racing just because I don't want someone carrying carrying around any residual fatigue. Um, so yeah, I'm really emphasizing that probably earlier in the program. Um, and this is assuming someone's racing competitive, but, um, yeah, I generally tend to keep some form of heavy, slow resistance into the mix, especially if someone has a history of, uh, lower limb tendinopathy. Um, my bias is definitely towards, uh, isometrics. You know, I always quote my friend, Charlie Reed, who says, you know, isos make heroes, um, I feel like people tolerate them well and, um, and they tend to be a little bit more forgiving from a fatigue standpoint. Mm. So, yeah, I, and I always, I, I also, I say holding is healing too, with a lot of these tendons, you know, meaning like the isometrics seem to work wonders. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Probably as we're all getting older, you know, in the adult population too, there's a, a big element of balance to this, I would say as well, right? And just even, you know, grip strength is tied in once we're doing, you know, some of these heavy holds, I guess, too. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I you bring up a, another thing that we haven't really gone down the rabbit hole on, but I think a lot of the tendon issues, uh, again, there's a lot of moving parts, but John Keeley talked about this article that he wrote about, you know, smoothness, you know, and I think that as we get older, yeah, we're losing capacity when we may be losing some tendon stiffness, but we also tend to lose fluidity and smoothness of movement. And that creates more jerk in the system. And I think that that is, that poses a a threat to tendon health and just soft tissue health. And that's why I always put such an emphasis on slow rhythmic movements and all, you know, and we can speed those up a little bit too, but, um, and, and I'm all in favor of, you know, like load it, lift heavy, but I do think that technique, it, it plays a more important role than people give, uh, lend credence to. Mm-hmm. So hmm. I just okay. know when people start to, you know, when they start to uh, get into trouble, like when you watch the move, there's more jerk in the system. You know, so again, Dan John always says, you know, strive to move with smoothness, grace, and fluidity, right? Um, so I I hope that comes, comes through with all the videos and content I put out where people are like, wow, that looks smooth. Well, yeah, hundreds, if not thousands of repetitions <laughs> have gone into that. Um, that's years in the making, but I'm doing that because you know, my, one of the things that I I think really got me thinking differently about this was I was walking with my grandfather, you know, Art Deffinger, Pap, and we were walking uh, out to his garden and he was maybe 86 years old at that point in time. And, you know, 
he didn't, I, I said, let me, let me grab a hold of you, you know, just put my arm around him. He's like, oh, get off me. You don't, you know, I'm good. You don't need to, you know, to watch me so close. And what happens? I mean, he's 86 years old. He's lost strength in his plantar flexors. He's probably just lost capacity in general, but he also didn't have great balance and he took a fall, bumped his head. That's the beginning of the end, right? So now that's an extreme case, but I do think that this is something that we should promote. And a lot of that's going to occur through repetition, but we also know that you can't do a double, a lot of double leg exercises and assume it's going to spill over into single leg balance. These are mutually exclusive systems, right? So I think that's why a good program should combine heavy, slow resistance with double leg exercises, broader, you know, base of support platform to produce force, but we should also be doing some single leg drills you know, to challenge single leg postural stability and balance. Uh, and then we should be doing some isolation stuff, especially if we have a remarkable past medical history where someone may have torn their calf or they've had, you know, a, a lower limb tendinopathy on one side. Cause you can just assume, you know, with most humans that they've incompletely rehabbed that. Mm -hmm. For sure. That's what we do. Yeah. Every adult I work with has a rotator cuff and, you know, on their way to some sort of plantar fasciitis calf thing especially the men it yeah. seems like yeah yeah well i don't want to keep any longer here uh but i will just say here it, your instagram is chris johnson the pt we'll link to that of course in the show notes and you can see all of your dancing and slow motion dancing and, and some of these strength routines i've mentioned uh you can also find in your link in bio there it'll have a link to it zarin pt is still your website uh if people are looking to book a yeah, session with you chris johnson pt um, okay chrisjohnsonpt.com is my main website and uh yeah for people who are looking to get a hold of me or reach out um just take a look at the contact section there um, if you've reached out through instagram i've probably seen it but yeah you can't expect a response um because i that would be my entire day you know but i try i try uh, i work tirelessly to try and follow up that's one of my core values is like follow up and communication with people well, I appreciate you following up with me. Uh, like I say, this was, you know, I, I've, you've been on my list of people I, I hope to interview. So I'm very thankful for your time today and taking several pages of notes here beside me. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I hope your workouts go smoothly here at lunchtime. Oh, cool. Well, I appreciate you having me on the pod, Peter. And uh, yeah, next time, uh, next time we connect, let's do it over a bike ride. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you want to hear more training, racing, and endurance sport advice, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox.